Well, I'm not too sure what to say right now. I'm going to share a story that I wrote maybe 15 years ago. I'm not sure. I've only written like two or three in my life. I'm not much of a writer. But this one was interesting because it came back to me. I had forgotten all about it. It came back to me recently in a conversation with a friend. And I took a look at it. And it was interesting to see quite a few little ideas or details or resonances that relate to my relationship with Twin Peaks. Although I only came to Twin Peaks a couple of years ago and to David Lynch's work a couple of years ago, uh, some of those ideas were, I guess, present in my mind uh, quite a while ago, particularly you know, during a bit of a darker period and its aftermath. And the aftermath of a darker period can sometimes be a little bit tenuous, because we don't want to go back to that dark period and at the same time we don't want to bury it completely so I think there's a little bit about like time repeating itself maybe some stuff with like fractured identity there's electricity and uh, maybe a little bit of the red room or some variation thereof uh, I titled it at the time subtle variations and I guess I'll just stick with that can't imagine anybody would be listening to this, but if you do, thanks very much. Uh, it's weird because I'm not, there was a long time where I didn't really want to talk too much, and I'm still kind of like that, but uh, I guess I'll share this anyway, and thanks for listening. There might be a little bit more coming out on this podcast. I go through ups and downs with my relationship with Twin Peaks and you know the idea of talking about it, but there might be some stuff coming out. I hope so, and I hope you have a good day. Subtle Variations A Quiet Man Comes to Terms with a Disturbed Past and Fragile Present, North Jersey Style. He used to drive to get lost, to see if he could get back home. Excursions post-midnight when the air and traffic are thinner, when moisture glows on pavement in wet lamplight in the moon hour of lost cats. On these drives, he'd always be alone. He was the driver and passenger and audience. And on this night, he eased around town for about 15 minutes in his dry blue 96 Jetta, musicless, windows down. Staying within a contained radius, he drove the minimum speed or slower, turning right or left every couple of blocks. The intent was to glide on minimum gas and concentration and he focused absently on the steady sound of dull firestones rolling over damp asphalt. Drawing in a mix of street humidity that both cooled and nourished him, he cataloged mundane images that escaped him during day hours. A turned-over shopping cart, minus one wheel. A square patch of wildflowers near the base of the town clock. A plea for peace, or peas, bumper sticker. A crooked yet vivid yield sign. Not quite in circles, he nonetheless drove to get nowhere. These midnight drives always soothed him most, and he looked forward to the time alone. Driving like this, attuned to the simple sights and sounds of his surroundings, would often pacify his troubled mind. Not nearly the mind of a few years ago, the one of relentless anguish, of racing thoughts, but instead this new, subtle fear of regression that always felt as near as his wallet. The trauma had passed, but the memories of the trauma remained, and they carried with them a much quieter desperation, the always unspoken fear of relapse.
Fifteen minutes into his leisurely drive, he exited town for the open road, heading northwest, and, as was his pattern, his attention turned from out to in. Whereas suburban driving gave him the stillness to notice the details of his surroundings, highway driving provided memory flashes, quick hits never drawn out or examined. These were the times where he knew that the Buddhist idea of monkey mind was the truth, that we think in associations, in memories, that the thoughts jump from branch to branch and back again, often crazed and restless, a cat hiding under a bed. Highway driving allowed for detachment, for meditation, a soggy ball of life cereal. The straight road did not require much concentration on the task at hand, no right or left turns every 30 seconds, and very little slowing and speeding. Instead, one could watch the monkey scamper around. A broken light bulb. This was not the time for problem solving, but rather the time to see what was really going on inside. Silver jacks on gray linoleum. On such drives, the free association would become more weird or intensify the deeper into night he rode. Music, good, real music, rarely found on the radio, would also speed up the process. Knowing what he was in for, he slipped in the best CD of his generation and turned the knob for most noise. The opening chords, so familiar and so tempting, transformed his setting from car to stage, and he let the dramatics happen. Even the cigarette lighter assumed significance when he pushed it in with purpose, the metal ring heating to a glow. At least half aware of his absurdity, he lifted a short cigarette from his breast pocket, tightened his jawline, and raised his chin with his toughest, sexiest expression. This instant attitude carried him for three or four songs for five or six cigarettes through collages of imagery, any means to recover. Brutal yet elegant guitars carried lyrics of strength, rage, wounds, and joy. He was alone in the car, but defiance dominated his movements, a key locking a door. He inhaled twice as long, a water-damaged ceiling. He sang with bulging neck veins, a plastic ID bracelet. He battered his dashboard, dirty breakfast tray. Then the music was over. Everything from the nose down streaked in tears. Then nothing. So he lit another cigarette without an attitude, without defiance, fear. He smoked his cigarette alone in his car and his nakedness, hardly present, still driving. Driving quietly, left shoulder slightly drooped, elbow set on the door's armrest, his head moved to his hand for a lazy inhalation, and, keeping his chin on the pad of his left hand, where the thumb meets the palm, and the fingertips soft on his cheek, he remained motionless. Only the left side of his mouth needed to move to reach his cigarette. The smoke slipped through the spaces of his fingers, his eyes barely maintaining contact with the road. A consent form may cause memory loss and the cigarette burned low, and his head rotated back to the front. His cheek slid along the pad of his hand, and his fingertips skimmed over the sideburn, the edge of his left forefinger momentarily grazing the front of his upper ear. Then this movement was halted. His four fingertips felt stuck, as though caught in a matted hunk of gluey hair, just as a blinding flash simultaneously shocked his attention back to the road. An open tube of electrode gel. 
A collage of sound overtook him, and he heaved his whole self and body to the left, his white-knuckled hands bringing the car with him far into the shoulder of the opposite lane. A brown voice. The blaring car horn flew past his right side. The skidding of tires straining sideways across their natural rotation went straight up his spine. Count backwards from ten. He could not possibly have stayed cooler, though, and he processed the entire situation in an instant. The guardrail ran intermittently along the road, allowing for authorized vehicle access. Amidst the high-pitched noise of near fatality, he saw clearly that the gap of the shoulder he headed toward was rail-free, and he lightened his grip to allow the car to steady itself, hyper-consciously knowing he'd have just enough room to use the extra shoulder space to realign the car, which worked, before easing it back onto the shoulder a fraction of a second before the guardrail reappeared. His body knew also to stay calm, and he kept the car straight on the shoulder, going the wrong way, which was a good thing because he didn't hit the second flash of light either. He didn't hit anything, so he took the car back into its natural lane. Once his direction was re-established, he returned his hand to the side of his head. He was alright. There was no blood, but he became aware of two things at once. One, he did have a dull headache. Two. He was driving only 30 miles an hour on a 50 mile an hour road, so he forced himself to snap back to the present moment, brought the car back up to speed, and tried to find signs to clue him in to his whereabouts. He took the next highway exit and spotted a nondescript diner a few hundred yards away as he decelerated around the off-ramp. If there's one thing he could always find, or that could always find him, no matter how lost he might be, it was a place for coffee. This is the beauty of North Jersey. Sitting in the corner booth with his back to the mirror and the entire view in front of him, he wondered how many times he heard Blinded or some Springsteen street song while alone with the black plastic ashtray at his side. Countless times. Enough, in fact, to think that maybe his life is not a collection of moments strung together one after another in linear time. Maybe his life, this place included, is simply variations of the same events, the same themes with the same settings and characters, just different places and faces. The same progressions, walk in, sit, hello, coffee please, black, yeah, refill it. Time and time and place and time again. Like a Barbie doll, always the same, pretty much. Just a change of clothes for tennis or for the disco, or a flatter pelvic bone or smaller breasts, depending on the era. A little variety, yes, but the same. Even this new train of thought was not new, but his mind's ability to articulate it was. He was gaining the ability to name things again, gaining language back. Streams of thoughts could once again form themselves like pink ribbons in the wind, without the fear of falling back into the past, into a time of entanglement, of suffocation, of incessant stopping and starting, a time of intense hyper-self-consciousness, voice cutting off voice, when all potential ribbons of thought were shredding themselves to bits. So he glanced with little expression at the time-to-eat clock above the cheesecake display, and he realized that the smallest instances were victories, and that the flashes of memories were just that monkey mind at play, not old ghosts calling for reacquaintance. Irrecoverable memories were not what mattered because life's cycle of near deja vus always allows for healing in the subtle variations. He let it be because what mattered most at that moment was that his thoughts flowed freely again, that he enjoyed sitting exactly where he was, 
that the coffee here was actually rather good, that he didn't need to feel alone, that he need not fear being well. He felt at ease with the monotony of this place, of this perpetual booth, of the never-ending cup of coffee, and though no one would know by looking at the guy, a subtle shift had occurred, enough where he could lean way to the left and check his reflection in the jukebox side panel, concerned above all else about his hair. Not his eyes, were they stable? Not his soul, was it lying? Not his mask, would it fall? He checked out his hair, and he was looking all right, and while he ashed his lucky with a tap of his right forefinger, the pad of his left hand, where the thumb meets the palm, slid seamlessly above and then behind his left ear, soothing over a few strays of soft hair. He switched over to the other side of the booth, his back to the openness of the diner, his body to the mirror, and, most strategically, the left side of his face facing the flow of traffic, because this had always been his better side and tonight he looked particularly striking.